Life Coaching and Counseling. If you're feeling blue and don't know what to do, call Anthony Brown. He'll help you. Go to www.associateslifecoachingandcounseling.com or call 281-545-5003. Speaking of truth is also brought to you in part by Anyone Can Travel. If you looking to travel the continental U.S. or overseas, call David Weefall at 832-577-1735 or email him at any, the number one, can travel at gmail.com. Also, if you thought about being a travel agent, you like, I want to begin that business, give David Weefall as well. He can help you out with that. It's 832-577-1735 or email at any, the number one, can travel at gmail.com. So today being the last day in Women's History Month, I would like to honor the Dr. Mary McClaw Bethune. Mary J. McClaw Bethune was born July 10th, 1875. She was an American educator, stateswoman, philanthropist, humanitarian, and civil rights activist, best known for starting a private school for African-American students in Daytona Beach, Florida. She attracted donations of time and money and developed the academic school as a college. It later continued to develop as Bethune-Cookman University. She also was appointed as a national advisor to President Franklin D. Roosevelt as part of what was known as his Black Cabinet. She was known as the First Lady of the Struggle because of her commitment to gain better lives for African Americans. Born in Mainsville, South Carolina, to parents who had been slaves, she started working in fields with her family at age five. She took took an early interest in becoming educated with the help of benefactors. Bethune attended college hoping to become a missionary in Africa. She started a school for African-American girls in Daytona Beach, Florida. It later merged with the private institute for African-American boys and, and was known as the Bethune-Cookman School. Bethune maintained high standards and promoted the school with tourists and donors to demonstrate what educated African-Americans could do. She was president of the college from 1923 to 1942, 
1947, she was one of the few women in the world to serve as a college president at the time. Bethune was also active in women's clubs, which were strong civic organizations supporting welfare and other needs, and became a national leader. After working on the presidential campaign for Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1932, she was invited as a member of the Black Cabinet. She advised him on concerns of black people and helped share Roosevelt's message and achievements with blacks who had historically been Republican voters since the Civil War. At that time, blacks had been largely disenfranchised in the South since the turn of the century. So she was speaking to black voters across the North. Upon her death, columnist Louis E. Martin said she gave out faith and hope as if they were pills and she's some sort of doctor. Honors include designation of her home in Daytona Beach as the National Historic Landmark, her house in Washington, D.C. as the National Historical Site, and installation of a memorial sculpture of her in Lincoln Park in Washington, D.C. The legislator of Florida is expected to designate her in 2018 as the subject of one of Florida's two statues in the National Statuary Hall collection. She was probably one of the most influential uh, African-American educators and civil rights figures during the first half of the 20th century. Mary Jane McLeod Bethune was born on July 10, 1875 on a cotton farm in Maysville, South Carolina a rural farming community located near Sumter. Mary was the 15th out of 17 children born to Samuel and Patsy McIntosh McLeod, former slaves. There's little about her beginnings that would suggest that she would go on to be one of the most powerful women uh, in America. And Bethune tells the account in her autobiography that at some point uh, she developed an ability to read and to write, uh, and not many people knew it. Uh, and she was visiting a home where her mother was taking in wash, and she picked up a book, and someone ridiculed her immediately and said, put that down. You can't read that, when in fact she could. And she knew that, that that moment was a suggestion to her that there was something perhaps powerful about literacy and perhaps powerful about education that she wanted to master. And I think from that very beginning, she realized that one could not be fully free until you were educated. Young Mary had dreams of becoming a missionary, first studying at the Scotia Seminary for Girls in North Carolina, then at the Dwight Moody Institute for Home and Foreign Missions in Chicago. Upon graduating, there were no openings for missionaries, so she became a teacher, then met and married fellow teacher and minister Albertus Bethune. Her teaching positions in Georgia and South Carolina gave Mary McLeod Bethune the burning desire to build a school of her own. She moved to Daytona Beach, Florida, and starting with just a dollar and 50 cents, she founded the Bethune Institute for Girls, which today has become Bethune-Cookman University. And she used Bethune-Cookman as her base to be involved in women's work, to be involved in politics, uh, to be involved uh, in civil rights. Bethune was influenced by leading educators of the day and was a skilled fundraiser. 
During World War II, she was invited to the White House by Eleanor Roosevelt and became instrumental in organizing a group of influential African-American political leaders, President Franklin Roosevelt's Black Cabinet. He needed strong, uh, persuasive voices to sit at his table to offer advice and consultation about how to make the Democratic Party more responsive to African-Americans. And one of the most powerful, persuasive voices at that time was Mary McLeod Bethune. Uh, she, she was a brilliant woman, a brilliant person. And anyone who understood anything about race and politics of that period knew that if there were going to be anyone at the table uh, to really set an agenda, she had to be there and, in fact, lead it. Future politicians would also be influenced by Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. My mother thought she was just the greatest person in the world. And she made me uh, just learn stuff about Mary McLeod Bethune. Because I was growing up in Sumter, and of course she was from Maysville, uh, eight or nine miles away. Uh, now since that time, I've grown to appreciate not just who, uh, but what she was, and the kind of um, stick-to-itiveness that she had. Congressman Jim Clyburn led the effort to have Bethune's portrait displayed at the South Carolina State House in 1971. Uh, it was a tough fight, but we prevailed. Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune has been honored in many ways, including a South Carolina historical license plate introduced by her great-grandniece, Geraldine Holloman Miller, and her husband, Ed Miller. When you think about a license plate in her honor, in her memory, one of my main purposes is to make South Carolinians and the world aware of such a great lady and her accomplishment. She had a journey and a story that she had to tell. And with the license plate, it has a story. And the story would add to her legacy. I think she, for me, was a powerful symbol. Uh, but it seems to me that she was also a window into a time. Uh, here was someone born during Reconstruction. Someone who witnessed segregation, someone who witnessed racial violence, but also someone who, from the very beginning, wanted to transcend that and had the wherewithal and the ability to navigate and to circumvent uh, tremendous obstacles from her days in Maysville, South Carolina, uh, to heights of influence from Washington, D.C. to New York. To grow up a sharecropper in rural Sumter County and to become an advisor to several presidents, I mean, that to me is her greatest uh, legacy. If there were a Mount Rushmore, uh, for African-Americans, uh, she would definitely be on there. Dr. McLeod Bethune attended Mainsville one-room black schoolhouse, Trinity Mission School, which was run by the Presbyterian Board of Missions of Freedmen. She was the only child in her family to attend school, so each day she taught her family what she learned. To get to, a, to and from school, Mary walked five miles each day. Her teacher, Emma Jane Wilson, became a significant mentor in her life. Wilson attended Scotia Seminary, now Barbara Scotia College. She helped McLeod attend the same school on a scholarship, which she did from 1888. Eight to 1893. The following year, she attended Dwight L. Moody's Institute for Home and Foreign Missions in Chicago, now the Moody Bible Institute, 
hoping to become a missionary in Africa. Told that black missionaries were not needed, she planned to teach as education was a prime goal among African Americans. McLeod married Albertus Bethune in 1898, and they lived for a year in Savannah, Georgia, where she did social work. They had a son named Albert. According to Harry Uggins, a visiting Presbyterian minister, persuaded the couple to relocate to Palocta, Florida, to run a mission school. The Bethunes moved in 1899. Mary ran the mission school and began on an outreach to prisoners. Albertus left the family in 1907. He never got a divorce but relocated to South Carolina. He died in 19, 1918 from tuberculosis. Bethune was described as an ebony in complexion. She carried a cane, not for support, but for effect. She said it gave her swank. She was a titular and preached temperance from African Americans, talking opportunities to chastel drunken blacks she encountered in public. Bethune said more than once that the school and the students in Daytona were her first family and that her son and extended family came second. Her students often referred to her as Mama Bethune. She was noted for achieving her goals. Dr. Robert Weaver, who also served Roosevelt's black cabinet, said of her, she had the most marvelous gift of affecting feminine helplessness in order to attain her aims with masculine ruthlessness. When a white Daytona resident threatened Bethune's students with a rifle, Bethune worked to make an ally of him. The director of the McCloyd Hospital recalled Miss Bethune, treating him with courtesy and developed such goodwill in him that we found him protecting the children and going so far as to say, if anybody bothers old Mary, I will protect her with my life. Self-sufficiency was a high priority throughout her life. Bethune invested in several businesses, including the Pittsburgh Courier, a black newspaper, and several life insurance companies. She founded Central Life Insurance of Florida. She eventually retired in Florida. Due to state segregation, blacks were not allowed to visit the beach. Bethune and several other business owners invested in Paradise Beach. They purchased a two-mile 3.2 kilometers stretch of beach and the surrounding properties, selling these to black families. They did allow white families to visit the waterfront. Paradise Beach was later renamed as Bethune Volusia Beach in her honor. She also was one-fourth owner of the Wellrisha Motel in Daytona. Mary McLeod Bethune an American legend. The audio of America McClard Bethune was brought to you by South Carolina ETV. To learn more about Mary McClard Bethune, you may watch this episode and other, uh, other information about her on YouTube.
One thing I've shared before that uh, I have become uh, the president of the uh, Texas State Employees Union in Texas, which is a statewide local. As the president, uh, I would say that one thing that my local fights against is uh, privatization of state government contracts, particularly state contracts. And not just to protect the jobs of state workers, it's to it's because that state employees have always shown that the job the products that they show and the outputs that they show saves money and you get a better quality of work and then when the state does work that they can that they can contract out otherwise they get a better quality and they save money and it's just better for this taxpayers it's better for to to have quality jobs in the community than to have other jobs by private companies give low pay poor quality and those companies only concern is making money uh for their own uh and make profits for their own um, so, start off this episode. You heard someone talk about Washington D.C. Now, if I wasn't a Texan, and I, at some point I may move to Washington D.C., I would live in Washington D.C. So the lady was talking about expressing how beautiful Washington D.C. was and how it exemplifies the nation. One thing that I'm going to share with you is about that particular story is the fight that they're having in Washington, D.C. about their public transit and how many parts of their public transit is being privatized and how the same issue there is the issue that we're fighting here against privatization, against how it creates the low wages, how it creates the working poor, how people are working for these entities and still qualify for Medicaid and things of that nature. And in lieu of it being part of a government agency, which will have better pay, better benefits, health care, and things of that nature, and things that all Americans should have when they're working. Medical care is a civil rights. And if anyone tells you anything otherwise, they're lying. Having a quality job, able to make enough money to support your family is a civil right. This country was founded on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there's no way you could have the pursuit of happiness without making a living wage. So I just want to share this uh, this information in, with you in reference to privatization of public transit in the Washington, D.C. area and how it's affecting those residents and how it's affecting that community and the fight that's being done uh, to uh, try to turn those, turn some of those things around. We got Metro, which is public. 
We have Metro Access, which is privatized. We have uh, DC Circulator, which is privatized. We have DC Streetcar, which is privatized as well. When we talk about what it really means to have private organizations running public transit, what we're talking about is it's cheaper because you're cutting the cost for your employees, their benefits, and you're using part-time workers to come in and out at a lower wage. Remember hearing about the bus stuck on the key bridge last month? That was me, stuck for about four hours blocking traffic because poor maintenance and management. These contractors, First Transit, Keolis, MV, etc., all do the same thing. They underbid the contract to get the job. Then they start siphoning off money from key programs like maintenance, safety, administration, running the buses and the employees into the ground to create a profit to send to their corporate headquarters. How are we supposed to feel safe when circulator bus operators tell us that they have doors flying open mid-route? Horns that don't work. The MV Employee Benefits Handbook instructs its employees where to apply for Medicaid. No one who works full-time should be poor enough for Medicaid. Can I get an amen? Amen. What we, I think, are challenged by in Washington is how do you continue to have a city where the housing is more and more expensive and that there are people who are working jobs that um, have to be able to afford some measure of housing. In my community, in particular, recreates cycles of poverty where you can work and still be poor. And to me, that's the new slavery and the new Jim Crow. What these multinational corporations are doing is a sin, a scandal, and a shame. And we're not going to let them continue to cast a web of injustice economic evil upon our people because we don't see any division between transit workers and our members and our community. We're all in this together. It's just the right thing to do for people to make enough money on their jobs to put groceries in their homes, send their kids to school, and not have to choose between paying one bill or providing for their child. And we want to see it run by the city, not run by all these different entities who ultimately don't have any interest. Their only interest is in making a quick buck. I'm asking the city council to step up. I'm asking the different areas of DC government to step up and say enough is enough. have an opportunity to make the right decision on the DC circulator. 
Whatever you decide, you will be the one held accountable for it. And you've met today people who will do that. Why invite the waste, fraud, and scandal of private for-profit companies? It's time for wise investments. The voices from that audio were Kawana Battle Mason, Reverend Karen Bra, and Reverend H. Lionel Edmonds. The uh, information was brought to you by the question. It's called the Question of Privatization from Survival Media Agency, and I believe uh, the Amalgamated Transit Union had a lot to do with that production as well. You can find you find that piece on uh, Vimeo. So by me being uh, located in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, I wanted to share some information with you about an upcoming event for those of you that are will be can be in the Houston area in April. It's the annual Houston Black Restaurant uh, Week, and it's from April 16th through April the 29th of this, of this coming month. Uh, you can find more information about this event and about tickets at houbrw.com. And um, I know of one particular share for one of the events that I plan on going to, uh, and, uh, and I'm really excited about Restaurant Week. Uh, so uh, check it out, houbrw.com, to buy tickets and more information about the Houston Black Restaurant Week. So, this uh, Easter weekend, uh, or Holy Week, uh, which is Easter for myself as a Catholic, starts uh, today, Saturday uh, evening for our vigil service, our vigil mass. Um, seems like there's a lot of controversy. Uh, and... One of the controversies, I'll speak of the latter controversy first, um, comes to you by Yahoo News, uh, a piece wrote by Tom O'Connor of Newsweek, March 29th. And actually, this is something that, um, that anybody that's very close to me knows my belief system, something that I can possibly buy into, but this is something that's going to shake the uh, Christian community and cause a probably a lot of could possibly cause a lot of turmoil uh, amongst Christians and Catholic, and particularly in the Catholic Church. The article is titled "Does Hell Exist?" Pope Francis says no in new interview that could change the Catholic Church forever. Catholic Pope Francis made a startling revelation Thursday by stating that hell did not exist in an interview with leading liberal Italian newspaper. In an article entitled, It is an honor to be called a revolutionary. It's in uh, that article, it's in La Repubblica. The editor for that is uh, Scaffold. Eugenio Scaffolari. He acknowledged that the Pontius' previous remarks about how good souls who sought repentance from God 
were receiving and then asked, what about the bad souls? Seemingly going against centuries of core Christian belief, Pope Francis said the souls of sinners simply vanished after death and were not subject to an eternity of punishment. So uh, I'm, I'm speaking away from the article. I've always, uh, well, I've heard uh, something from uh, it's, it's from old CNC Music Factory um, CD uh, that says, uh, "If you're good, you live forever, and if you're bad, you die when you die." And uh, that's something that I've always kind of kind of believed myself. So anyway, back to the article. They are not punished. Those who obtain the forgiveness of God and enter the rank of souls who complete him. But those who do not repent and cannot therefore be forgiven disappear, Pope Francis said, as translated by Catholic blog. There is no hell. There is the disappearance of sinful souls, he added. Pope Francis leads the chrismas of Holy Thursday during his, which sacred oils are blessed at St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican on March 29, 2018. That same day, the Italian newspaper La Publica revealed that the pontiff believed that hell did not exist. Stefano Valadini Reuters. Shortly after the article was published, the Vatican issued a statement that claimed the article was not a faithful transcript and that the meeting between Pope Francis and Scafari was a private meeting and not a formal interview. Now, what's going on with that statement, and I'm not surprised that that statement came out, usually... And this pope is, is that we have is a very liberal pope and a, and a very learned man. And he's... May, has made some statements that goes against what they call the magister, but that that is not with the magisterium, which is not official, quote unquote, official teachers of the church. For the church to have an official teaching, you have to have the pope plus the, the magisterium, which is the pope plus the court, the college of the, the college of bishops, uh, the college of bishops, including the card, cardinals. There, the Pope, along with them, are the official te official teachers of the church, which means that a Pope could not independently have his comment. He's, for lack of a better term, a spokesperson, and he cannot put put out official teachings. So that's what that well, that's what's going on about that. So his particular opinion. A theological opinion about that may go against the uh, the official teachings of the church, but something I happen to agree with. What is reported by the author in today's article is that the result of his reconstruction in which the literal words pronounced by the Pope are not quoted. No quotation of the aforementioned article must therefore be considered as a faithful transcription of the words of the Holy Father. The Vatican said in a statement translated by the Catholic News Agency. Uh, this agency also pointed out that after a controversial 2013 article, Scafalari admitted that some words attributed to the pontiff were not shared by Pope Francis himself. Pope Francis is the 266th Catholic Pope and the first to be born outside of Europe's born Jorge Mario Borgoglio in Buenos Aires to the Italian family that fled the fascist rule of Benito Mussolini. He entered the Society of Jesus, commonly known as the Jesuits, at the age of 21. 
since becoming Pope, following the resignation of his predecessor, 2013, Pope Francis has been known a vocal supporter of reform of the Catholic Church and advocate for the poor. And I would say that he is an advocate of, of a lot of reform in the church, but I believe that the College of Cardinals are really holding back a lot of reform. He's really trying to open up the doors of the church and showing love for all people, being more beneficial to the poor, and making it easier, like it should be, to become Catholic and become a Christian and love God and things of that nature and show your love for God and things of that nature. Um, he was pushed for greater outreach to the young and other faiths, as well as more liberal attitudes towards controversial topics such as contraception, evolution, and homosexuality. These ideals have all over have often drawn the ear of the Catholic Church's more conservative clergy, some of whom have pushed back against Pope Francis' leadership. Uh, so anytime there's a beacon for change, you're going to have pushback. And my hopes is that this beacon of change, this, 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 and this Pope will be the callous of a, a more loving church, not just the Catholic Church, but to Christian faith as a whole, a more accepting church, because um, at one time I was working on a, 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 a doctrine in uh, a ministry, uh, which I decided to change and, and, and work on this PhD in psychology, and from that, um, one thing that we study is that the the organized religion is dwindling down, dwindling down fast. And the reason being is that um, it is not relevant as it used to be, especially when it comes to millennials. Another idea that was shared was that the church and culture brothers and always been brothers or religion and cultures brothers the practice of religion and they no longer recognize one another so when it comes to the the Christian faith some things are going to have to be looked at in terms of how we share and expressing our faith and how we expression our faith and how we are excluding people that's another topic for another mother podcast, but uh, I will say that a lot of his ideas are can be a lot of these ideas of that there being no hell, and even so far as some ideas of there being no devil, which is something that will shape the Christian faith, can be found in a book called The Gospel of Conclusion by Bishop Carlton Pearson. Uh, I don't agree with all the ideas that are in the book, but some of the ideas are food for, uh, uh, food for thought. Um, and um, so you may want to pick that book up, read it, and see see what it, what it is. But I, what I do know is that there's good in and there's evil, and we're responsible for our goodness. And I'm irritated by a lot of the rhetoric of putting our personal responsibility on a devil 
when we are responsible. And I'm irritated when I go to uh, services where you hear ministers preaching about a devil more than they're preaching about God and about uh, Christ as the Savior of the world as Christians believe. And uh, so to hear a new uh, ideas on heaven and questioning the fact of something that's latter is refreshing and but who knows who knows what the truth is but what does matter is that loving one another on earth loving one another in the here and now and treating one everyone with respect and that's what really matters whether uh at the end of the day love is what really matters This next topic is uh, about, uh, I guess, a very kind of a sensitive topic for me is is about uh, in in religion and something that that would come that I find kind of strange that would be released Holy Week uh, of Easter, uh, which is known for a lot of the churches, especially the uh, Protestant church, as one of the most um, profitable weekends of the church season because, uh, you know, many people go to church during Easter. And it's about um, the Reverend Kirby John Caldwell, who is the pastor of Windsor Village United Methodist Church, a church in Houston uh, that's, that's considered a mega church. The reason this topic is sensitive to me is that um, I'm um, a son of a United Methodist minister. Um, my father's now passed away, and who's the, the uh, Reverend Andrew Brown? And he pastored a church in Houston uh, called, uh, well, many churches, but one church in particular called Mount Vernon United Methodist Church. And during our time there, uh, I remember as a kid, a young man named Kirby John Caldwell came down, moved back to Texas uh, after being a uh, a uh, successful person in finance and worked on Wall Street uh, in New York, but decided that he received the call to the ministry, and he moved uh, back to Texas. And his home church was Mount Vernon United Methodist Church, and his mom... Uh, was a member there, and his father was too. I remember his mom was an educator, and his dad. I believe she was probably retired at that time, but his his dad was a uh, owned a tailor shop, and my I believe my dad got a couple suits from that particular tailor shop. I believe it's a third ward, if I remember correctly. And this young man, tall man. Of course, I was a short kid. Everybody was tall to me, but he was tall and very articulate. Uh, decided to be a minister, and when you're a minister you in the United Methodist Church, you started by being in something called the candidacy program. So he was in this candidacy program with my father for a little bit where he first started his ministry before being appointed to his, probably being appointed to his first church, and only church, which is Windsor Village United Methodist Church. And I remember that that particular church, we went there one uh, Halloween for a party uh, when the first church first started, they had 25 members, and this uh, 
neighborhood, I think it was because of gentrification, this neighborhood um, was a neighborhood in transition from a, being a white neighborhood to a black neighborhood. So a lot of the white people moved away and they had 25 members at this particular church. So I've always had a lot of respect for Kirby John Carwell and I know he's a very smart businessman and I really question the validity of the story, but I'm going to talk about the story. But what is bothering me is that people automatically assume guilt before all the facts are out, before a person has it in court. Uh, I've seen firsthand how someone could be considered guilty and the facts of a case can't, uh, uh, being skewed and making a person feel guilty uh, because any lawyer would tell you that in a grand jury, you can you can make a ham sandwich look guilty. You can indict a ham sandwich. You bring any information you want to to a grand jury to indict what you want to indict. So I go ahead and tell the story. Um, and this particular story comes from the uh, the Washington Post. Uh, it's Kirby John Caldwell, famed Houston mega past church pastor, sold millions of worthless bonds for his charge. A Houston mega pastor and longtime spiritual advisor to President George W. Bush was indicted in federal court Thursday on claims that he sold more than one million in worthless Chinese bonds to vulnerable and elderly investors, some of whom lost their life savings to the alleged scheme. A federal grand jury in Shreveport, Louisiana, returned a 13-count indictment accusing Caldwell and financial planner Gregory Allen Smith of wire fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy. Uh, prosecutor said in a news release. The two men were also sued by the Securities Exchange Commission in the same federal court on allegations that they violated financial laws. According to prosecutors, Caldwell used his influence as the pastor of the 16,000-member village, Village of Village United Methodist Church to dupe investors into buying historical Chinese bonds issued decades ago. Caldwell's and Smith, a 55-year-old who operates a Shreveport-based financial management firm, alleged promised investors sky-high returns, sometimes 15 times what they invested, assuring them all along that they could be later sold for tens of millions of dollars. In reality, prosecutors say the bonds were collector's items. These bonds were issued by the former Republic of China prior to losing power to the communist government in 1949. U.S. Attorney Alexander C. Van Hook said in a statement, they are not recognized by China's current government and have no investment value. Carwin Smith could not immediately be reached for comment Friday. It was not clear if they had retained defense attorneys or entered a plea. Now, Friday, there was a press conference that that uh, Caldwell and his lawyer, Reverend Caldwell and his lawyer, uh, and openly said that he's not guilty and that uh, that the facts that's in this uh, particular claim is not true. The article goes on, the indictment and SEC lawsuit could mark a humiliating fall from grace for Carwell, a prominent religious leader who long held the 43rd president ear as his closest spiritual advisor. After developing a friendship with Bush when he was the Texas governor, the 64-year-old pastor lived the benediction at both of Bush's inauguration and, it, and officiated his daughter's Gina, Gina's wedding in 2008. 
The same year, he endorsed President Barack Obama in his bid for the White House. Caldwell, who started his career as an investment banker and bondbroker, has led the Windsor Village Church since 1982, when it had just 25 parishioners, according to the church website. In this, at the, in this time since membership has swelled into the tens of thousands, Caldwell has also launched community development projects in the Houston area, including schools, an AIDS outreach center, and nutritional programs. His financial background has long played a role in his ministry. His 1999 book, The Gospel of Good Success, a roadmap to spiritual, emotional, and financial wholeness, discusses how he transformed his mega church into a kingdom-building machine and advises readers on how to create wealth's God way, among other things. This is not a get-rich scheme, Caldwell told the Dallas Morning News 1999 interview about the book. It's about being faithful to God and receiving what God has for you, he said, and being a blessing on God's terms to others. The historical bond schemes like the one Caldwell and Smith are alleged to have orchestrated are a common, if unsophisticated, tool for scam artists, according to the U.S. Treasury Department. Railroad bonds and other type of historical bonds are traded among niche collectors, but they are worthless as securities and without value as investments. According to court documents for the SEC posted by ABC 13, Caldwell and Smith lured in 29 investors, most of them vulnerable and elderly, telling some they stood to rake in exorbitant returns in a matter of weeks. Smith, who has years of experience as financial planner, told investors that the bonds were risk-free and guaranteed and that he had invested some 250000 in them himself the SEC complaint stress. Once someone agreed to invest, Caldwell would have them wire money to an associate or to a company he and his wife control in Wyoming, according to the, the complaint. Some people gutted their annuities to invest in the bonds, officials said. In the one instance, Smith told an investor who put up $800,000 that the bonds were backed by gold or silver, when in fact the bonds were in default and no liquid market existed for them, according to the SEC complaint. Although many investors did not understand the investment, they ultimately trusted Smith and took comfort in the fact that a high-profile pastor was offering the investment, the complaint reads. When the pair failed to provide investors with promised payouts, they invented elaborate excuses for why they had been unable to sell them, officials allege. Now, if you look at the press conference that Caldwell made on uh, Thursday, he stated that anyone who asked for a refund received a refund. So I'm really anxious to see what the results of all of this is coming out. Uh, back to the article. Instead of investing the funds, the defendants used them to pay personal loans, credit cards, balances, mortgages, vehicle purchases, and other expenses, Van Hooks, the prosecutor said. Carl Winsmith each faced up to 20 years in prison on the wire fraud counts and 10 years for the money laundering counts, as well as one million fine. This whole article troubles me, I think, more than the Bill Cosby uh, episode, I guess because I once knew... Uh, uh, 
uh, I guess I know him, but I haven't seen him in a long time, uh, Reverend Carwell. Um, but I definitely have a lot of respect for him. I definitely feel that he's innocent until they can sh- prove more. And what I hope is that people will not have judgment until the facts of this case will come out that people will not leave this great church and stay at the church until everything comes out because um, the Windsor Village is bigger than the pastor itself. In fact, I believe that people put their pastors on pedestals as if they're little gods anyway and uh, worship their pastor more than they should worship their savior. Uh that's my hope. Whether that happens or not is a different story. But we as Americans, we need to stop judging people in the media. We need to to really buy into the fact that a person's innocent and to proving guilty because in law enforcement, a lot of people are unfairly prosecuted. Whether it's in this situation, I don't know. But I'm confident that the truth comes out it comes out if uh, everything is done fairly uh, so I hope I pray for the Windsor Village United Methodist Church family and I pray for the uh, Reverend Kirby John Caldwell The next topic uh, I want to uh, talk about is uh, about a, it was actually about sexual health. Well, it will, it will be the, the pre-course to another topic that I'm going to have in the next coming weeks about sexual health um, when I interview someone in, in that, uh, that's, a, that's a specialist uh, of the topic of sexual health. But I want to do a pre-course about a current uh, story that's in Houston uh, about a death of a very well-respected city councilman, Larry K. Green, who was my city councilman in my area uh, of the city that I lived in, District K, which is where I live in the city of Houston. And Larry Green, a few weeks ago, was found uh, dead in his home. Um, and at the time, they were saying that it looked like it could be a happen an aneurysm or something to that effect. But on Thursday, which was the day of all these interesting stories were coming out in the news, uh, it says that uh, Larry Green died of toxic combination involving methamphetamine. Uh, and I'm going to read the story, but I'm going to really tell, uh, really explain, which the news is really explaining this, and people really need to know this because it, it's in reference to sexual health and, and the habits that a lot of young people are doing when it comes to sex. Um, and that's saying that I don't know what happened to Larry Green in terms of, of his particular death, but I want to... Uh, but let me just go ahead and get into the story. Uh, the autopsy results have determined that Houston City Council member Larry Green's death was an accident. 
Test shows he had a combined toxicity of chlorothane and methamphetamine. Green was found dead in his home on Tuesday, March 6th, and he was 52. Houston police said a missed meeting led them to perform a welfare check on Green's home. According to police, the city leader was found in bed and there was no obvious signs of foul play. The Houston, the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office provided the following description of substance found in Green's system. Chlorothane or ethyl chloride is an organic solvent that is found in aerosol spray preparations. It has been used as a solvent, refrigerant, local anesthetic, and in the manufacture of various other chemical compounds. Methamphetamine is a stimulant that is commonly known as meth or speed. Methamphetamine has direct effects on the body to produce a sense of excited elation, but that eurific feeling is accompanied by direct toxic effects on the brain and on the heart. Street preparation of methamphetamine are unpredicted in their concentration and active compound and are considered dangerous and potential lethal in concentration. Now, um, I'm going to leave that story and start talking about those two two particular drugs uh, because they're interpreting that the city councilman was on meth and I don't think that's the case. So I received information from a chemist friend of mine who really explained to me in detail what this is about. And this is something that a lot of people are doing, a lot of youngsters are doing, that party and it really needs to be brought out so that people will change their habits. So the chloroethylene, the ethyl chloride, what that was, that more likely is that was found is something that a lot of people use when they're having sex and it's street called poppers. Poppers come in a bottle, I'm told, and people sniff on it and it makes the sexual experience more gratifying and um, so in such some type of way I guess it gives them some type of high and it makes the experience more gratifying the methamphetamine more than likely is it well is found in uh, and it, it is speed but it's found in a street drug called ecstasy Ecstasy is a drug that some people party and take, and it gives them a high of this great feeling. It makes them gives them a uh, makes them feel sexual. It makes sex better. Uh, and a lot of people that that are partying and plan on having sex use this particular pill. So poppers and ecstasy. It's commonly used together. It's very commonly used together in pe- people that are single and party alike and like to have a good time. People need to be aware of this and stop and say what it is, call a thing a thing, and and not really try to describe this generally and especially when they're trying to to make the councilman look like he was a meth addict or something to that effect, more than likely what was going on is that poppers was used and ecstasy was used. 
and since this is something common that a lot of young people use when it comes to sex, it needs to be talked about. Education needs to happen so that there won't be further deaths of other people that are really contributors in a society and won't have any other accidental deaths and overdoses and lose any more great contributors to the community. It really needs to come out. And from this particular story, in the next coming weeks, I'm going to have a conversation about sex, about uh, the safeties of sex, about response, sexual responsibility. People are going to have sex. People are going to probably still use poppers and use uh, ecstasy and other drugs. But people need to be made aware of being responsible so that that they can make an educated choice when it comes to choosing one thing or another. And I'm saying all this out of love. I'm not bringing this out to disrespect uh, uh, Councilman Larry Green or his family or anything. I just think it's very important to call a thing a thing so other people can learn from uh, from these poor choices so that we won't have any any uh, deaths that could be prevented. You have been listening to episode 15 of Speaking the Truth with Anthony Brown. Speaking of the Truth can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, CastBox, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Radio Public, which is my favorite, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. And also can be found on the app Vaudo. Also have limited episodes on YouTube as well as SoundCloud. To become a patron of Speaking the Truth, please go on web, go on the web and look up www.patreon.com slash speaking the truth slash creators. That's Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash speaking the truth slash creators. You can become a patron for as little as one dollar a month. And uh, as little as one dollar a month and increasing it up to other levels. This will uh, help the program to advance. So you want to participate in this listening supported group and join others by being uh, patrons of Speaking the Truth. Please, uh, please look into it and, and make that decision with uh, to uh, to support Speaking the Truth or not. Speaking the Truth is always brought to you by my company, Associates Life Coaching and Counseling. If you uh, want to know more information about Associates Life Coaching and Counseling, you may go to www.associateslifecoachingandcounseling.com. If you're in the Houston area, you may call 281-545-5003 for information about appointment. And if you're outside of the area and you need immediate help or, or, uh, or anything, you may go to Instatango and contact me www.instatango.com.
S T A N T G O dot com slash Anthony W A Y N E B R O W. You can contact me there via text, via voicemail, or via, via video chat. And also, if you have any questions that you'd like to be on air, you can always email me at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. That's speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. We will read your uh, Dear Anthony questions on air and we will give you our advice and answer the question and uh, always remember to rate us especially on uh, Apple iTunes rate us make a comment and let us know what you think about the show if you have any ideas or topics feel free to email us this is uh, been episode 15 of Speaking the Truth happy Easter and as always be well be well